What if you asked different questions? What if, if you didn't ask, how's your head now? Um, is your dizziness gone? That type of thing. But instead of what if we, we started asking different questions that were, you know, what were you able to do today? You know, how did math class go? Uh, what do you need or what do you want this week so I can help you more? Like those kinds of questions would most likely be much more useful for a young person in their recovery process. And it would really allow us to, to figure out what do they need to, from us in order to help them do the things that are important to them. Welcome to the Heroic Minds Empower series, supported by the Empower Foundation. My goal with this series is to further understand and simplify the latest research on how the brain works, how it is affected by injury, sleep, nutrition, stress, and more. I wanna find out what the latest research tells us about how we can recover, maintain, or enhance our neurological health. What does the latest research even mean? How can we apply this information to our own lives? Talking with clinicians, researchers, and those that have suffered from brain injuries, I plan to share these answers. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Nick Reed. Dr. Nick Reed is an associate professor at the University of Toronto, as well as a clinician scientist and occupational therapist within the Bloorview Research Institute at the Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. He is involved in the development and implementation of a sport concussion clinical service and research program. Dr. Reed also acts as the co-manager for Holland Bloorview Center for Leadership in Acquired Brain Injury. In this episode, we contrast youth concussion or pediatric concussion with adult concussion. What are the predicted concussion times? How is the recovery process different? What are the different variables involved? We even discuss the complex topic of when kids should start contact sport and what are the variables that should be considered because usually those topics aren't discussed in the public. Parents and coaches and players usually don't get to hear that side of the conversation. The most powerful part of this episode to me was the importance Dr. Reed puts on the human and functionality side of his patients. He does not solely use a symptom-focused checklist. Dr. Reed approaches symptom management from the reverse order. What does the patient want to be able to do and how can we make that happen in a safe way? And then we'll figure out how we can do that with symptoms that may be around right now. As opposed to, here are your symptoms, here's what you're allowed to do. It puts the patient or the individual at the center of the recovery process. So I think this is an important episode for anybody, but I think even more so for those in schools, in arenas, on soccer fields, on basketball courts that are working with people that may be struggling with their concussion recovery. Before we hop into the episode, remember to check out empower.ca, E-M-P-W-R.ca to see all the cool stuff we're doing, all the resources we have, past episodes. There's clips and snippets from each episode with a little bit of info that you can easily share on your social media page. And really, you can be a part of the Empower Foundation yourself. Share this information. That's what we're trying to do. We're reaching out to people, reaching out to doctors, researchers, clinicians, people that have been through concussion. We're taking their stories and sharing them with people. And you have the ability to do that as well, sharing these messages however you can. So again, empower.ca if you're curious, want more information, or want to see a list of past episodes. Alrighty, here we go. Let's start where I am today, and then I'll backtrack with where I came from. So currently an associate professor in the Department of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy at the University of Toronto. 
Um, formerly at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital, where I co-directed and launched our concussion center there uh, with clinical services, research programming, and educational programming. And now I remain an adjunct scientist at Holland Bloorview, but uh, just started a new position at the University of Toronto that I'm pretty excited about. So clinically, I'm an occupational therapist. Um, so my job there is to help uh, individuals, and in my case, kids with concussions, do the things they need, want, and love to do in their lives. Uh, and for me, it all started as a kid growing up playing every sport under the sun, uh, running everywhere, uh, you know, never, never standing still. Uh, it eventually sort of evolved into mostly basketball and then eventually mostly lacrosse, so playing uh, competitive lacrosse from the age of five in the Toronto Beaches system all the way through junior A and through university and drafted to the to the professional league by the the Rochester Nighthawks and just really enjoying that sport but with lacrosse it's a it's a contact sport there's a there's a lot of contact from an early age and and it's physical and I had my share of injuries and I saw my teammates also uh, have their share of injuries and and in my case I was able to keep playing the sport for many years and in my teammates cases sometimes they weren't able to do that whether it be from concussions or from other injuries so uh, for me my goal was always to to sort of explore the body explore healthcare explore um, you know you know sciences and, and applying that to the sport uh, context uh, I always so I studied uh, kinesiology at McMaster for my undergraduate work, where I also played lacrosse there and had uh, a great four years, great experience academically and and athletically. And my thoughts were always to to sort of go into sports medicine of some sort. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in in the sports medicine clinic, getting treated and learning from from the staff, and was really excited about exploring a career for myself in that field. Uh, and actually one night, I think it was in my third year at McMaster uh, in my kinesiology program, I went to an informa information night, uh, what I thought was a physiotherapy information night, and turns out it was both an occupational therapy and a physiotherapy information night for graduate school to apply to graduate school. Uh, so I went for the physiotherapy content. I thought, you know, this, this would suit me really well. And sure enough, the occupational therapy uh, session started out the, the event. And, and this was a profession I had never really heard much about or, or knew much about. Uh, and it, it truly blew me away. Um, this idea that it's a health profession that you know, looks at injury or, or conditions or disease as, as that condition, but also that condition that's on a body that's part of a person and that person's part of a family and a society and a world and there's all these other factors environmentally um, that can influence recovery and how we manage in our day-to-day -day. And, and that got me really excited and, and from there I didn't turn back and I applied to occupational therapy school and uh, studied at the University of Toronto and um, was really excited to bring sport and occupational therapy together. When I arrived in my program at the University of Toronto, I realized it may be a little harder than I thought to do. There was a lot of our placements and opportunities weren't very sport oriented. Um, but uh, I was lucky enough in my second year of, of the graduate program to do a research project where we had accelerometers embedded into hockey helmets. And I followed a competitive hockey team, youth hockey team, for their entire season and measured head impacts and related that to uh, cognitive performance, physical performance, and, and tracked concussions. And it, it, was, uh, it, it was the start for me. It opened up the floodgates on how to bring occupational therapy and neuroscience and health and sport all together was to study concussions. And from there, I entered my PhD in the Graduate Department of Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Toronto, now known as the Rehabilitation Sciences Institute. 
studying uh, pediatric concussion. Uh, and from there, started at Holland Bloorview in a in a sci in, in a scientist role, and now here at the University of Toronto. So quite the pathway, but you know, I think it really speaks to you know always keep your eyes open and 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 look for things that excite you. It may not be what you thought you wanted to do, uh, but in the end, it's going to be if you're passionate about it, it's going to be a, a career that you you really enjoy and and allows you to do some great things. So I'm extremely fortunate. That's awesome. I, on a bit of a separate topic there where you concluded, it's cool to hear how passion in a way guided you to where you are today and created mm -hmm. its own career, I guess, for you. And, and now you're doing so many different things that you're interested in. It's on the sporting side. I think that's an important point. And it, it, I'm working on a little side project with a buddy about how we can help athletes do exactly that. We're mm -hmm. told that think we can only do one thing as we go through the, the paces of, of chasing professional sport. And when we can stop or someone stops us and forces us to look around at other things we could also be passionate about or pairing two interests together that we didn't know we had because all we did was sport, sport, sport. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a really valuable message. So, which I'm sure there's athletes listening to this. So that's, that's a really powerful message. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I'm a bit, I'm, I'm biased towards athletes too, because the skills that athletes develop being an athlete and being coached and, and being a teammate are all things that apply to so many different sectors. And I think, I think, yeah, you, you have the skill set, you have the foundation, then apply to what makes you excited and, and great things will happen. I agree. I agree. I'm glad you're on the same page. It was cool to hear that you have the, the two sides, the adult side and the youth side, I guess you could say, to this concussion conversation. And I think there are differences that often the concussion gets generalized. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if, if maybe we start at brain development and what the main differences might be of if a child sustains a concussion versus an adult, are there different things that will likely happen? Are there different things that uh, predict long-term issues uh, just because of the difference in age, different development time of, of the brain? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's 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 so exciting and interesting to explore, and there's still a lot we need to to learn around what does the developing brain um, look like, and what does it mean with regards to how does it respond to injury, and and you know, are there certain critical points in development that are going to be more susceptible to impairment, whether it be short term or longer term, and these are all questions that collectively, as a scientific community. Um, we, we need to we need to answer and we need to and really explore and see you know how do we best help this pediatric population and I think you know generally the message I like to give is is we do need to realize that children are are not just mini adults right and and you said it Ben it's this idea of generalizing concussion as being sort of an injury that is experienced in the same way by everyone, but it, it really isn't. And, and not even with regards to age, being an adult or, or a child, but this injury is, is so unique to everyone and how they experience it and the types of signs and symptoms that uh, they may experience and, and their ability to get back to the things that are important to them. But I think particular to, to pediatrics and, and to kids, um, life is different, right? Um, when it comes to sort of brain development, sure, the physiology is very different. Things are changing all the time. As I said, there's critical periods of development where um, new skills and, and ways of dealing with information in the world are coming online and, and changing at an extremely rapid pace. Um, but aside from that, you know, I guess related to some extent is, you know, our emotions as a, as a young person are quite different and how we regulate our emotions and our moods. 
Um, and then just externally thinking about the goals of young people. They're very ambitious. They're looking ahead to, to many things. There's pressures, there's demands that are quite different than perhaps an adult would experience. The supports in their environment are, are going to be different too. And for, for pro and, and for con sometimes where there could be more supports in your environment, but sometimes that leads to more cooks in the kitchen and more people trying to sort of decide what's best for you as a child. I think one thing that often gets overlooked as well is this idea of environment. And you know, think about growing up as a young person or, or your own kids or, or kids in your life. Um, the environments that youth engage in are, are busy, you know, complicated, complex environments where it, rarely do you have an opportunity to sort of be on your own and reflect and, and, and sort of rest that brain if you need to. So, um, you know, I think just generally kids are very different. The worlds they live in are very different. The way they think and, and respond to the world is very different than adults. And then you complicate that matter with a, a brain that's changing every day. Um, it can be a challenge to, to manage an injury like concussion. And does that changing brain cause issues with symptoms? Does it worsen symptoms? Do we, do we even know that? Do we know that a changing brain affected by concussion may cause a confusion in symptoms? Yeah. So I think to me, it's a very intriguing question, right? So, I, you know, this idea of when you sustain your concussion, whether it be a first concussion, second, third, um, you know, the numbers could go on when in your development you sustain that, is that going to result in a different um, recovery experience or different outcomes, both functionally or physiologically, moving down the road longitudinally uh, as you get older. And I think, I think more work does need to be done there. But in general, from a, a functional perspective, we do know that, uh, and perhaps we don't know the reason, but we do know that kids take longer to feel well after a concussion. So when we think about post-concussion symptoms, so those emotional, uh, physical, um, cognitive symptoms that individuals may feel after a concussion. Uh, and we often use these symptoms as a, as a benchmark for progressing towards recovery. So once these symptoms start to resolve um, and don't interfere with, with life's activities to the same extent, Perhaps we can start to say that that individual is, is becoming recovered from their concussion. However, I think there is some nuance to that term recovery. Uh, but I think, you know, when we know from some more most recent literature, so some great work by Roger Zemek, a great colleague and friend of mine out at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, um, where they, you know, explored this, this exact thing, you know, how long is it going to take for kids with concussion to, to recover? And sure enough, it's, it's, you know, it's about four weeks for most individuals. So about 70% of, of kids that have a concussion are going to experience some form of symptomology for, for about four weeks. And then a 30% of group is going to experience symptoms for much longer. Where we compare that to other literature that looks at adults, um, that time frame in kids is is about you know two to three weeks longer to some extent. Um, so it is something we all need to be aware of that you know if mom and dad had a concussion and it took them a week or so to bounce back to feeling well, um, we don't want to project that same trajectory and timeline onto onto young people or onto their children because it's likely that it's going to take some time for that young person to feel well. That's, a, that's a, such a powerful point. Would you maybe hypothesize or maybe you know that it has to do with this, the brain itself or is it also partially maybe understanding at a young age of the process to recover may not be as clear for a youth as it is for an adult? Mm -hmm. Or at this point, would we 
not to assume, but I guess predict that it's purely because of um, the brain itself, the physical construct and the changing brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think we do need to explore more directly that that question, and and that's an exciting one to explore. But and you know, my opinion at this at this time would be it's a bit of both, right? I think I think the brain is developing, and there's lots of things going on, and 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 that's going to possibly cause the, this idea of recovery to to be a little bit different. I but I do think you're right, Ben. I think. Um, you know, if, if a young person or the people that support them in their lives aren't aware of some of the strategies and things to do to feel well after a concussion, uh, it's going to be hard to feel well. So I think it's, it is a bit of both. Yes, there's an underlying physiology that I think we need to understand more. Uh, but we also need to make sure that we're supporting young people after they have a concussion to have all the tools and tricks and resources at their disposal um, to do the best they can and work towards those things that are important to them in their lives. The next step in that conversation would be, I guess, factors that fall into kids and their concussions, whether it's the way they recover from them or the risks that they may, they may be exposed to more than adults that maybe if we really sat down and thought about it, we would think about, but most of us aren't around it every day and you mm-hmm. are working in this field. So you might have a, a clearer picture, I guess, on those factors, those unique factors for kids versus adults. And I wondered in your work, what is it you see? What are the biggest things you see in kids, factors that parents potentially, or even coaches that are coaching young kids should be aware of uh, that are maybe puts kids more at risk or a recovery process may be hindered because of X versus an adult? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. I think, you know, in general, thinking back to this idea of environments and, and activities and what do kids do, right? And I think there's, there's a range of activities that young people do that put them at risk for injury, including concussion. Um, sports is one of them. So a lot of young people do engage in, in sports and oftentimes contact sports where there is going to be a risk for injury to any part of the body, including a hit to the head or body that's going to cause that brain to, to jiggle inside the skull and, and perhaps be injured and, and for that young person to experience a concussion. I think it's also important for us to be, to be honest with ourselves and, and realize that there's a lot of other things that can cause a concussion as well for a young person. And this could be motor vehicle accidents. This could be tobogganing in the winter. It could be horsing around with your brother in the backyard. Uh, it really could be anything. This injury can happen in many ways. And I think uh, that's a message that I like to get out that this isn't just a sports injury. And it, it you know, our educational efforts and our clinical efforts shouldn't only be targeted to athletic populations, but this is an injury that uh, perhaps anyone could experience based on just, you know, having that, that mechanism uh, uh, hit a force to, to that brain that's going to cause a, a concussion to occur. So I think that's a, that's a key message. When it comes to the sporting environment, I think um, we often see concussions uh, taking place in, in many different sports, but, you know, hockey lives and breathes, you know, contact sports, rugby, mm-hmm. soccer, lacrosse. There is uh, studies out there to show incidence rates within that are higher in contact sports than other sports, perhaps, uh, amongst young people when it comes to concussion. Uh, but a message I like to share is, you know, and this is coming from my own personal experience as being a lacrosse player and playing contact sport from the age of five, um, 
you know, I, I think there's a difference between using contact in sport, uh, perhaps for de- defensive purposes or to get the puck or ball or so on or be in a good position uh, versus what we often see in, in, in many sporting environments, arenas, fields, whatever it might be uh, right now where contact is used as a, as a mechanism to perhaps injure or to knock someone down in a, in a really sort of aggressive and, and violent way and to unfortunately get a big cheer from your teammates and, and from those in the stands. Uh, I think this idea of attacking culture is something we, we really need to do. And, you know, if, if contact is going to be a part of a sport, then we need to make sure that the culture of that sport is, is to use contact in the, in the, you know, in a manner that's going to limit that, that chance of hurting someone or hurting yourself, but rather using contact to, to play the sport and, and get possession of the puck or ball or whatever it might be. So uh, I think there's a lot of work to be done. I, I will say working with a lot of amazing youth sport organizations over the years, there's been so much progress in this area where this idea that um, concussion and, and just safe play in general is at the forefront in I'm telling you now that coaches and players and parents want to play these sports and they want to play them safely. Um, we're still working on, on shifting that culture and it will take time, but there's been a lot of progress and it's very exciting to see. And I think, uh, you know, sport is extremely meaningful and important to, to so many young people, including myself, and I'm sure yourself too, Ben, growing up. And I think oh, yeah. uh, we want to make sure we're promoting those life lessons, but in the safest way possible. Yeah, it's almost maintaining the context, I guess, keeping that that body contact in whatever capacity in the right context for the sport and for what it's actually used for as opposed to taken out of the game for something that's not actually helping or applicable to the goal of that specific sport. And that's a, a culture change, like you said, but I also think it's conversations like this that can just, you know, kind of tap someone on the shoulder and say, hey, we need to change things a little bit and, and the message continues to be shared. So I appreciate mm-hmm. that. Could, mm-hmm. Would we be able to say that, and I'm just circling, almost circling back, but that made me think of something contact at that younger age versus contact at an older age, or we could say fully grown adult. Do we know anything about susceptibility is in a child versus an adult? And, and now I know, I'm learning very a lot from people like yourself and, and, doing this podcast is that there's so many other things that could contribute to a concussion or the symptoms of a concussion and whether that be strain to the neck, mm-hmm. um, maybe it's impact, maybe it's change of direction, maybe it's torsion, all those different things. Is, is it that a child's brain might not be as strong? Is it that their neck isn't as strong? Is it that their body's not as strong? Do those factors fall into susceptibility or risk of concussion? Or do we even see any trends along the lines of that? Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about it. And being someone that grew up playing contact sport, I think about it all the time. And I and I also think about um, sort of growing up playing sport at competitive levels, and then even now playing as a as an adult, right, in, in sort of the Sunday night league where you're not supposed to hit each other, but you get hit and it still hurts and those kinds of things, right? And I think there's there's been some interesting work over the years, um, a group at, at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, um, and just looking at this idea of, and this is embedded in, in sort of this work where sensors are, are put into to sporting helmets, whether it be hockey or, or football, uh, and, and just sort of looking at what are the what are the mechanics of the brain? How much force is being put, at least applied to the head, and, and sort of 
um, by proxy, how is that brain moving around and, and the potential for injury? What does that look like? And I think this idea of anticipating contact versus not anticipating contact is a really interesting thing um, that gets my wheels turning and makes me think about it and, and sort of thinking about you know, if you anticipate the contact and you prepare yourself for that contact, and, and to your point, Ben, around uh, musculature and engaging the musculature, is there going to be some sort of a protective factor uh, when you do that versus when you aren't anticipating that contact and you aren't prepared for it? And, and what does that mean for, for your body and the forces applied to your body and then potentially the force applied to your brain as well? And I go back to that example of growing up playing competitive sport and knowing what's around me and knowing and expecting to get hit and being prepared uh, versus playing on the Sunday night league with, with you know, a bunch of old timers like myself and, and not expecting to get hit. But when you do, you, you really feel it. So I think um, there's something to be said about that in, in being aware of your environment and, and what's coming at you and preparing your body perhaps for contact. Um, there's also some interesting insights in, in previous literature around um, you know, we see oftentimes uh, a lot of the literature, particularly in collegiate athletes, has shown that uh, female collegiate athletes, hockey players in particular, have have high rates of concussion compared to, to males. And, um, you know, it, but this, again, female hockey, there's uh, no contact, you know, there's no body checking. Uh, that's not part of the game, but there's still these rates of injuries. And, and perhaps that has something to do with this idea of anticipating contact and preparing yourself for it. With all that said, you know, I'm sort of speculating to some extent, I think there could be some really great research questions answered with some specific methods to, to look at that, but, but it's something to think about. And, and, you know, is it, is this idea of preparing your body and having the musculature, um, to be prepared and to perhaps have that protective factor. Is that something that we can start to explore and perhaps apply to prevent some concussions down the road? See, I love that. I love that conversation because when I grew up, there was, and it seems like it continues to switch, but I'm not as involved in minor hockey now, but there was always the conversation of, do we start hitting at 12 years old or 13 years old or nine years old or 10 years old? And mm -hmm. that wasn't part of the conversation. Like, I don't think there was uh, from, at least from the parent side and to the player side, when we're starting to even understand, we're, we're at an age where we're starting to understand things and we just thought body contact was cool, but that wasn't part of the conversation. I wondered if, I mean, I hope that's being discussed in the decision-making process, but I think that should also be shared with parents. I think mm -hmm. that should be shared with the young kids because that can be quite the eye-opener of the health of your brain and, and telling a young hockey player, lacrosse player, whoever, you might not be ready in a, even a, a performance side. Like, mm -hmm. are you at a high enough level that you'll know when a hit is coming while the puck's on your stick and you're trying to make a, a play, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's a really powerful point to that entire conversation. It also makes me think about optometrists we had on the podcast, Dr. Quaid at a, at a Guelph area. Mm -hmm. And he talked about a study where they worked on vision performance, vision therapy for a football team and just different trends and, and concepts relating to concussion. And the concussion was the concussions four years later, I believe. So they trained the, the one year of students at a university in the States, I think it could have been either way. It was four years later, they trained this team and concussion rates actually went down after implementing this vision training program. Mm -hmm. And 
not necessarily causation, but they're thinking that, okay, if we can improve the performance, can players give themselves an extra split second to prepare for that hit, hopefully decreasing the instance of concussion. So it's, uh, it's fascinating. And I, I think this is what's so exciting about the field. And I know, we, we have parents and, and kids and individuals and organizations. Everyone wants all these answers, and I do too. We want them now. We want to be able to, to, be able to, to fix this and prevent as many of these injuries as we can. And if the injury happens, we want to be able to manage it and get these people back to doing the things that they need, want, and love to do. But on the flip side, as a, as a researcher, there's a lot to explore, and it is extremely exciting. And now I think we need to you know, get together as a scientific community uh, and, and really figure out what are the questions we, we need to invest in and, and explore and, and find these answers out. It, it's quite an exciting time for the field. That's cool. I'm so lucky. I get to somewhat be a part of it and, and help people like yourself that are right in the trenches share these messages. So I'm, I'm just as excited. Going back to the the comparison side of, of the adult and youth, and well, I, may, I think I might come back there a couple more times, but mm-hmm. I'm intrigued on recovery process. So there are many different things, and we, as we know, it's not one size fits all. But do we see any trends of, of, I know one of the topics that are often discussed is, and we have on this podcast many times, is, is actually trying to get back to life as quickly as you can, especially once you're in that post-concussion concussion syndrome stage. And, and Dr. Michael Hutchison and I talked about that in the first episode, is once you have had these prolonged symptoms, to push through them doing certain things and feeling those symptoms won't actually, at least science is showing right now that you're not actually making things worse. And I wondered for youth in that situation is sleep and taking time off, would something like that be better for youth because they are still growing? And I don't, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm very intrigued by that idea. Are there certain things that would help uh, a child recover? Or do we see any trends there versus an adult? Yeah, so from the literature and what we're seeing, and there's a lot of great exploration going around, around exploring directly exercise and the impact on recovery. Uh, And similar to adults, we're seeing in kids that um, this idea of bedroom jail and and sort of, that's what I call it, so prolonged rest and locking yourself in your room and disengaging from your social networks, your physical life, your cognitive life, all those things, um, is has done more harm than good. Um, so some, some work out there that has showed that the kids that are re-engaging sooner um, are actually doing better in their recovery. And I think uh, it, it's very exciting. I think it, it sort of gives that green light now for rehabilitation. And as a rehabilitation professional and occupational therapist, um, that's exciting. It, you know, it allows us to step in there and strategize and think about what are the things that we should be doing after a concussion, what are the things we shouldn't be doing, um, some trial and error, some experimentation, but also really grounding all of that in, in sort of living a, a healthier life and sort of this idea of let's, and I say this to, to young people and their families all the time, let's use this unfortunate situation in your life, be it the concussion, to reevaluate sort of how we live, right? In, in how we rest and how we eat and how we engage with, with the people we care about and, and how we work and how we play and, and try to manage that in a way that's going to be as beneficial and promote health as much as possible. So I think in general, the idea of getting kids back to doing things sooner 
is, is similar to adults. We want to do that. So this idea of early rest, so 24 to 48 hours after a concussion, um, sleep, because in many cases, yeah, you will want to. That's what you'll want to do in those early days. Uh, but we do need to start to gradually reintroduce um, what I call safe doing or things that are going to be safe activities, meaning you're not going to be at risk for another concussion, uh, which is a very important point here. I think we're throwing around this message often uh, in many different venues, whether it be you know public media or in, even in academia as well around, okay, the days of resting are gone. Let's get back into doing things. Well, there's a difference between doing things and playing AAA hockey, right? So we, mm -hmm. need, to, we need to be really smart about that and do things in a safe way. Um, so what are those things? And, and I think what's exciting, sitting down with a young person is exploring what those are, right? What, what makes you happy? What are the things that we could do that aren't going to put you at risk for a concussion, but are going to get you moving again, are going to get you engaged with your social networks, are going to get you um, using your physical and cognitive systems in, in your body to, to work towards that recovery. And, and I think that's, that's really important to, to think about. As you mentioned, similar to adults, if we're trialing activities, safe activities in the, during that symptomatic stage, and, and, and you have some symptoms, but you can manage them, then maybe those activities stay on your list. But if you're not doing well at all and it's making you feel really bad and, and you just can't keep going doing that, then maybe those activities go off the list and we try those later on in our recovery. So it, it's really exploring sort of an inventory of I call occupations or activities that are going to be safe, that aren't going to push your symptoms to a level that you can't tolerate. Uh, and I think most importantly, are going to make the young person smile a little bit while they're recovering and, and, and feel good about things in their lives, whether it be socially, at school, uh, with their, their sport network, with their family. We, we need to think about what those things are. Uh, and then once we can manage many of those things, uh, then we can start thinking about getting back in, into the sport arena and, and all the things that come along with that. But um, there are some things that, that you need to be able to manage before you get into full contact activities, whether it be sport or anything else where you're at risk for another concussion. A really important nuance with, with kids is this idea of getting back to school uh, before we start thinking about playing contact sport again or, or engaging in risky activities. Uh, and I, I think it's a message that we, we all want to make sure we share broadly with young people and their families and their teachers and anyone else in, involved in their lives is, uh, you know, if, if that brain and body can't handle the school environment, which granted is a very busy, noisy, pressure-filled, uh, cognitively demanding and possibly physically demanding environment, if that brain and body can't handle that environment, then I think it's a sign to say that it's not ready to be put at risk for more injury in, in a more contact-filled uh, uh, environment like contact sport or, or something else that could be risky. So, uh, you know, I like to say, yes, some good initial rest uh, is really important. Then we need to work together to identify some safe doing or some activities that you can do um, that are important to you, that are going to make you make you happy, but are going to be safe. Um, work towards that full return to school and getting back into that routine. Uh, along the way, introduce some exercise and some non-risky sport activities. And once we can handle all that, then we can start to have the conversation on how do we return um, to the full demands of, of a sport uh, 
that the child plays and that they love to do. Um, but we, we need to make sure that those other steps are, are taken before we go too far in the other direction and, and put a young person at risk for another injury. It's so interesting that in all of that, getting back to play, you, and maybe it was just the nature of the way you were speaking, but you, you didn't touch too much on making sure all the symptoms, there's no symptoms and do your symptom checklist and this checklist and the protocol. It was, it seemed more, or I guess less um, of a specific uh, plan. It was more of just, let's see how this person adapts and evolves and improves and recovers. And I, I actually appreciated that. It seemed more human the way you were talking about it, as opposed to let's get this sheet out uh that's you know not customized for anyone it's just very general Mm -hmm. and let's let's use that and make sure all the symptoms are gone and then get them back to play and i guess it leads into the something that you brought up which is the focus on function versus symptoms and not only focusing on symptoms Mm -hmm. because how valuable is it to actually treat these people as humans and and focus on the actual function of their brain and their bodies as opposed to just the symptoms they're feeling Right. Yeah. And I I think it's so important. And again, this is my occupational therapy influence uh, coming to the forefront in managing concussion, where it's this idea of getting people back to the things they need, want, and love to do. Uh, And yes, these young people with concussions may have headaches, they may have dizziness, they may have difficulty attending to things, but all of those symptoms that they're experiencing impact their ability to do activities or occupations that are really important to them and to others. So I think we need to extend past this idea where it's all about symptoms. If I can manage the headache, then then I've done my job as a healthcare professional. That's not true, right? We need to think more broadly about what is the plan to, sure, let's manage those headaches, but what is the, the, the bigger picture plan to get this young person back to the things that are important to them, that are meaningful to them? Um, that's absolutely essential. And, you know, I think there's a few things that I like to think about and, and share some messaging around when it comes to symptoms. Uh, and, and one is, you know, we know that symptoms are not specific to concussion. So the post-concussion symptoms that we usually look at in our four, four main areas, be it physical symptoms, so headaches, nausea, cognitive symptoms, be it difficulty attending to things, maybe some memory issues, um, some behavior and emotional symptoms. So, uh, you know, increased sadness, sort of ups and downs in emotions, some anxiety and and sleep-related symptoms. So being the the final of the four categories. Um, These are all things, if you ask any group of people to raise their hand, if they've ever had any of these symptoms, people will. And and they're not necessarily related to concussion. Uh, They are certainly related to concussion when you have one, but we, we can have these symptoms for many different reasons. And we did a study a few years ago, and this was uh, led by uh, Ann Hunt, a great colleague of mine, uh, now here also at the uh, Department of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy at the University of Toronto and OT as well, um, where we looked at just healthy athletes. So these kids hadn't had a concussion. We had about 900 kids in the study total, I believe. Um, And this was pre-season before any injuries took place. And we just wanted to see what post-concussion symptoms they had at that time. So we use the post-concussion symptom inventory, a a a very common um, scale where we ask a range of symptoms and get youth to rate uh, if they're experiencing that that symptom on a scale of zero to six, zero being no symptoms, six being the most severe I've had. Uh, And what we found across this almost 900 youth was that without concussion, 
uh, a lot of these young people were experiencing symptoms. So about 67% of them had some mild to moderate post-concussion symptoms in the absence of injury. Um, which is really quite interesting because if we're, at least at that time when we wrote the paper, we were making a lot of decisions with regards to even progressing to any activity based on this idea of having no symptoms at all. Uh, and if, if that's the goal to, you know, for a child to have no symptoms at all before they can engage in, 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 in occupations and activities that are important to them, um, perhaps that's that's an unfair expectation because we all have these symptoms for many different reasons. So I think just putting that in perspective that we feel we sometimes we have headaches and sometimes we have, um, you know, our emotions are, are, you know, we're not regulating our emotions the way we always do. And I think we just have to normalize that a little bit and realize that kids are kids and there's going to be a lot of things that are going to, that are going to impact how they feel. Um, so we don't want to make all our decisions on this idea of feeling perfectly well because maybe we, we never do. Uh, and, and maybe that's not an expectation we want to put on a young person. Um, I think as well, uh, there's this idea that, you know, and I see it all the time, and, and I'm sure you've seen this too, Ben, and, and many of your listeners, if they've been in experienced concussion or if they've, um, you know, if their child's had a concussion or kids that they have on their team, the first question we ask young people when they, as soon as they come in the door, or when they wake up or when they finish doing some homework, we say, how's your head now? How's your headache? How are your symptoms? Um, you know, and we ask that question over and over and over again. Uh, and eventually these, these young people just don't want to talk about it. Right. And I think that's, that's not a spot we want to be in. We need to have open communication. We've done some work as well, and, and also anecdotally, where, where uh, we've learned that kids don't really want to focus on their symptoms. Um, they would rather share about what they can or can't do or what they want to do or the friends they want to see or the sports they want to play. Uh, we had a study um, called the Reframe Study where we did some group-based uh, programming. So we had a youth group that was four weeks long that sort of uh, had some good discussion opportunities, uh, walked through sort of topics like social life and school, managing stress, mood changes, family dynamics, things like that. We also had a concurrent parent group. So the parents of these youth who were concussed in the youth group, uh, the parents would have their own group and they would talk about different topics like being a supportive parent and self-care and education around concussion and so on. Uh, and what was really interesting in the field notes of our group facilitators was in the youth group, um, the facilitator for that group actually had no idea what symptoms the youth were experiencing. It didn't come up in four weeks of group-based activity. The specific symptoms and what symptoms were bothering them didn't come up at all. All these kids wanted to talk about was sort of the loss of meaningful activities and the concerns they have about trying to get back into these and their friend group and their, their social life and school and so on. Whereas you contrast that to the field notes of the facilitator for the parent group, um, it was only about symptoms. The parents just couldn't get off of that, that cycle of talking about their child's headaches and the concern about the headaches and the, you know, their, uh, their inability to, to sort of go through the day without getting headaches and, and that type of thing. So it, it's a real contrast between how kids seem to want to approach their recovery and their injury versus how their parents and perhaps the adults in their lives do. And I think it's something we need to be aware of, whether we're healthcare professionals or, or just, you know, 
supportive people, empathetic people involved in a young person's life, um, there's more to it for them than just the symptom itself. So something that I found was really interesting. And then anecdotally, as I mentioned, right, we, you know, all the time, it's how are you feeling? Do you have a headache now? Rate your symptoms on this scale. Any change in your symptoms? Are you dizzy after you've done that? Um, Mm -hmm. This is what a young person hears and sometimes for months and months and months if they're not recovering well. Um, But I, you know, I challenge people to think, I do this for my team and and whenever I get a chance to share some broader messaging, I I challenge people to think, what if you ask different questions? What if if you didn't ask, how's your head now? Um, Is your dizziness gone? That type of thing. And, you know, rate your, rate your balance ability on the scale of zero to six. But instead of what if we, we started asking different questions that were, you know, what were you able to do today? You know, how did math class go? Uh, what do you need or what do you want this week so I can help you more? Um, you're, or, or things like you're doing so much more this week uh, than you did last week. How come? You know, what's changed? Like those kinds of questions would most likely be much more useful for a young person in their recovery process. And it would really allow us to, to figure out what do they need to, from us in order to help them do the things that are important to them. So something that I think we all need to sort of reel it back a little bit and, and, and think about life and, and think about function and, and what makes kids smile and ask them about those things versus the headaches. Again, it's such a human side and a human approach to something that I think we've, we as a, a everyone involved over the past few years has tried to turn into something we can handle with checkboxes and numbers mm-hmm. when we're just realizing it doesn't quite work like that. And the other thing it reminds me of is the episode I just did with Dr. Jeff Kutcher. Mm-hmm. And we talked about the potential of the placebo effect in some people that are diagnosed with a concussion and don't actually have a concussion. And that research is showing trends that that can actually bring on concussion-like symptoms just because they were told that. And it makes me think about a young child being asked over and over again, hey, do you have a concussion? Do you have a concussion? Or sorry, do you have a headache? Do you have a headache? Do you have memory loss? Do you feel upset? And if they're asked that enough times, they might start to think, oh, maybe I'm supposed to feel like that with this injury and then maybe start to feel it. And maybe that goes back to that placebo idea, which who knows? Again, this is, I'm just hypothesizing and thinking out loud as, as we have this conversation, but it's, it's definitely an, an interesting point. If, if these young kids do think they have to feel a certain way, so then they maybe start to, or they start to say they do just because that's what all the doctors and, and specialists are saying. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that's really important to consider. And I actually see there's sort of two ends of that spectrum, right? You have, you have the young people that um, start to develop that sick identity. Well, you know, if everyone's asking me if how's my head doing or, you know, how my symptoms are, then yeah, perhaps these are things that I'm supposed to be feeling, and 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 perhaps that that can become their new normal as a result of of sort of just being in that environment. Um, then you also have the other side of the spectrum, I think, where. Um, young people just don't want to hear it anymore and eventually they just shut down and communication ends and then we have nothing to go off of you know we we know in the in the field right now in in concussion our options for true well validated psychometrically strong outcome measures objective outcome measures are 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 limited so we do heavily rely on that honest communication uh, and you see it in all the return to school or return to sport protocols. Um, 
these protocols, whether it be a, a coach helping deliver or a teacher helping deliver or a healthcare professional or a mom and dad or a friend, um, we're really relying on that young person to be very honest with us on how they feel and how they're engaging with the things in their lives uh, and the demands in their lives. And if we if, if, if we abuse that relationship by doing something that's really just going to annoy that young person to a level where they shut down completely, then then we don't have much hope of, of really supporting that child in, in the most appropriate way. So we do need to be very careful there and, and sort of open up the lines of communication uh, and, and really try to individualize it for that, for that child, for that young person, uh, and get a sense of, you know, what's going to work well for that person. And, you know, it's, there's no cookie cutter way. It, it is an individualized approach. And, you know, one of my PhD students, former PhD students, Melissa Paniccia, she, she wrote a really great paper um, where uh, looking at this idea of doves and hawks, so sort of profiling youth with concussion and, and thinking about how do we approach our rehabilitation? How do we approach our conversations uh, where not all kids are going to be the same? And, and it's, it's, it's sort of this evolutionary theory where you have... Uh, doves on one end that are quite passive, so perhaps they need a bit of a push to activate them to get doing more things, where, where that child, if sort of left to their own devices, would, would maybe sit in their room and, and perhaps experience more harm than good as a result. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, you have the, the hawks, and they're really active, and they're go, 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 and they're going to push through everything because they, they just, they just want to engage, whether it be in sport and school. And perhaps those guys need to be deactivated a little bit to, to sort of that middle, that middle range of the spectrum where there's sort of optimal recovery that can take place. But unless we have that open communication and, and get a sense of who these kids are, we, we can't really do that. And we can't either push them or dial them back to a spot where... Um, they're going to be engaging in, in activities at a level that will be therapeutic and, and beneficial to their health. I think that open communication with these specialists too, I'm sure when, when these, the patients come to see you, these young patients that you deal with and they have the experience with you where it's the very human and open and not as structured as a two pieces of paper where you check boxes, I'm sure that experience is better that also in coming full circle continues to help them in their recovery process. If it's every two weeks they come in to see you and it's more checklists and more symptom checks and more this depressing approach, I'm sure that, and when I say I'm sure, only because in my experience with people that have approached me with support, it really brings them down and actually makes them, from my experience, less likely to want to keep pushing and try new things. It's, it's, oh, I have to go to the doctor and hear that I still have a concussion. I have to go to the doctor and hear that uh, the symptoms are never going to go away. And I think even that experience alone could be uplifting for someone, depending again on how they, how it's delivered, which it seems like you have such an incredible approach for that. Mm -hmm. I would agree, Ben. And I think, you know, sort of selfishly as a healthcare professional, if we dive a little deeper with some communication and, and try to identify what are the things that this young person sitting in front of me needs, wants, and loves to do in their lives, then, then we can help with those things. But, you know, if we don't ask, we won't know and we, we can't help. So that's sort of a message I like to say to, to our, you know, our team and, and more broadly, you know, if our real goal is to get people back to their lives, then we need to know what they do in their lives and we need to know what's important in their lives or, or we won't be able to do that. Um, so I think, you know, we've done a little study recently that we're still just plugging away on, but it, it's really simple. And we've asked young people with concussion 
um, sort of what things in their lives are they having the most difficulty doing uh, and, and really the most difficulty. So not just, yeah, you know, it's kind of bugging me, but what are the things that are most problematic for you? And we call these occupational performance issues. So, um, you know, the, you know, the occupations or the activities in your life that you want to be doing that as a result of your concussion, you're not doing. And, and to do this, we use a tool called the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure. So it essentially, uh, it's an interview that you use with, with an individual, and in this case with young people with concussion, where we ask them to identify things, activities or occupations across self-care. So this could be grooming, feeding, uh, productivity. This could be work or school or leisure. So socializing or sports. Um, uh, identify any issues in those areas that, that you're experiencing and then sort of rate the importance of that issue. So 10 being, you know, this is, you know, not being able to see my friends is, is really, really important to me. And then sort of prioritize those issues so we can work through them in clinic yeah, through our rehabilitation process. But from a research perspective, we asked this question just to get a sense of kids with concussion, what are the things that they're not doing that they want to be doing? Uh, and it, it, it's been really interesting to see this sort of play out where, sure, we see um, sport-related activities being high on the list. So, you know, a, a lot of young people wanting to get back to sports. Um, but we also see, you know, school on there, too, to, to a large extent. And, and that's generally where a lot of our emphasis with international guidelines and research and consensus statements uh, and even more local work clinically has been focused on getting kids back to school and sport. Uh, and this research study showed us that, yes, those are important things, but there's also so many other things that are really important for kids um, that are high on their list and, and they aren't doing in the way they wanted to. Um, so these are things like, um, you know, from a, from a, a, a pleasure or social perspective. So things like reading or cooking and baking, watching TV, Netflix, spending time outside, the arts, so drawing, playing a musical instrument. Um, these are all things that young people do. And we even had, and well, socializing was a big piece as well. So um, being around friends, going to the mall, having sleepovers. These are all things that are important to young people. Um, concussion or not. And these are things, if we don't ask if these are a problem and if this is something that's really important to you, then I can't figure out a way to help you get there and do it. Um, and I go back to my earlier point around safe doing. A lot of these things are quite safe. You know, you're, you're most likely not going to have a concussion uh, while playing your clarinet or, <laughs> well, you know, and I, I know it's a bit tongue in cheek, but it's true. These are activities we can create an inventory of activities um, that are important to that person individually, but are also safe for them to do and can help them re-engage into their life and the social networks that are a part of them. Uh, but again, if we don't ask, we can't help them. Interestingly yeah. enough, we also found um, that for a lot of these young people, and granted, these were, were kids with concussion that weren't recovering well, so they were beyond the four-week point uh, of their recovery post-injury, post um, but we also had a subset of this population where we asked this question of what activities are most important to you that you can no longer do, and self-care came up. So things like taking care of yourself and grooming and dressing and feeding yourself and hydrating, these were things that came up on this list of, of things that 
we need to help young people that have concussion re-engage in. And, and I think with concussion being a mild traumatic brain injury, um, sometimes these more essential skills in, in life and day-to-day function get overlooked because we're focusing so much on getting back to the hockey rink or getting back to write that math exam. Uh, but there's a lot of other things to explore. So the real message there that I like to share is Again, this idea, if we don't ask, we won't know, we can't help. And let's push beyond just treating the headache and really identify what are the occupations, what are the activities that are really meaningful to these young people and work towards getting them back to those. Is there anything that often comes up? Are there two questions that most kids would have when when you see them? Is there something that, you know, I don't know if it's how long is it going to take me to recover? What is the biggest question? Is there something we haven't chatted about yet that, that mm-hmm. someone might be able to help help a young child with? Well, and I think it goes back to my point around how function and activity is is really what's driving these these kids after their injury to get back towards. Uh, and those are the questions we get all the time, right? And it's simple things like, can I go to Wonderland and ride the roller coaster? You know, can I... Can I watch the hockey game, the whole hockey game tonight? Can I go have a sleepover with my friends? You know, can I do all these things? And, and it's, you know, the answers are, well, if you're not going to be concussed again, um, then let's explore it. But let's think about it in the context of everything else you've done in the day or in the week or in the month, uh, really along these lines of managing energy. And I think this is, this is sort of something that is a really simple way Oh, sorry, it's not simple, but it, you, you sort of boil it down into general wellness and health strategies that we can all use. Um, and, and sort of when I get those questions around, can I do this? Can I do that? I say, well, if we put a plan together where you're conserving your energy, so you're using the energy that you have to do the things that are most important, you're planning things out, you're pacing yourself, you're putting yourself and positioning yourself in environments that aren't going to use too much of that energy and make you feel unwell. If you have a good sleep routine, if you're eating well and often and hydrating and avoiding you know, sugars and caffeines and things that are going to, you know, trick your brain to be feeling in a different way. If you're building on some relaxation strategies and figuring out what your triggers are for stress and how to deal with them. And if we have some plans in place for school and and activity, then we can try anything that's not going to make, that's not going to cause you to be injured again. Uh, With that said, it's, it is trial and error. And we, we need to sort of be really honest with each other as we work through that rehabilitative process to determine how did you feel? Um, what did that mean? What did that mean to you? And let's strategize to maybe do this better. And, and maybe that's not taking the activity away, but maybe doing it at a different time of day when you feel great, or maybe doing it after a good rest, or when the week isn't so busy and your priorities aren't different. So I think, yeah, I think the questions I get mostly from kids are, you know, when can I do the things that I love to do? Uh, and collectively, as a, as a unit, as a healthcare professional, as a researcher, as a parent, as a, a friend of that child, as a coach of that child, of a teacher, we need to get on the same page and work towards some successes and some wins for the child as they get back to life. I don't know if you're taking in any adults, but I have some, some older people that I think would love your approach and, and would love to meet with you to, to figure out a plan of action. I, I really appreciate your optimism and, and how empowering it seems your, your approach to this whole discussion is. So I, I really appreciate that. Now, I guess going off of that with new ways to help, new mm-hmm. ideas and 
platforms, whatever it is, what I guess are you working on or what do you see in your field of, of now new models of service for, for people? And I know Michael Hutchison had actually told me to ask you about some high school concussion clubs that you're yeah. working on and a part of. And I think as Hutch said years ago, there's actually a lot, and I think they did it at the University of Toronto research that showed even education, just simple education of concussion before mm-hmm. a concussion occurs has shown to decrease recovery times, which mm-hmm. I think is fascinating. So um, yeah, if you want to dive into that, I'm, I'm intrigued on what new models there are today and how we're offering help for people that, that really need it. Yeah, no, I would love to. Yeah. And I'll start with the concussion clubs because this is, this is a real passion of mine and we're just diving into the fun of this, this research study. So um, this project and, and Dr. Hutchison, he's part of the collaborative team. And I think one of the best parts of this project is we have a really incredible team across the country. So 30, 32 collaborators across Canada, be it researchers, uh, youth, parents, uh, school boards. It's, it's been really, really fun to do. And I'm co-leading this project with uh, Pamela Fuseli at Parachute Canada. And what we're doing here is, you know, trying to think about really in- addressing that problem of are we engaging youth in the most appropriate ways to increase their concussion knowledge, their awareness of concussion, um, their perceptions of concussion, but I think most importantly to extend it just beyond raising knowledge, but to actually changing behavior. Uh, and for our our hope with this project is to change two main behaviors. One is reporting that concussion. So we know concussions are underreported in, in the adolescent population. Um, and again, same idea. If, if these youth don't tell someone, then we can't help them. Um, but we also have to create environments and in, in, in a culture where reporting is, is something that um, youth will want to do and, and feel safe doing it. Uh, and then the next step, which is, is sort of a, a real interest of mine, is, is thinking about how we can empower youth to help each other. So this idea of changing behaviors around social support and in particular peer social support. So, um, you know, if, if I'm a friend, if my friend has a concussion, how do I help them best? What are the things I can do to contribute to their recovery and to their their health and their happiness? And I think, you know, by thinking about different ways of, of changing these behaviors through transferring knowledge, uh, I think we can be much more effective in our approach in helping young people. So what we've landed on through a lot of consultation with youth themselves in, in, in really picking apart some ideas and, and getting their opinions is this idea of concussion clubs. And, and it's quite simple. It, it aligns with we think with what already goes on in, in the high school setting, uh, the club culture that many high schools participate in. Uh, so this project itself, it's funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, and uh, we call it the Youth Concussion Awareness Network, or UCAN. Uh, and what we're essentially doing is working with 18 high schools from across Canada, so in rural and urban areas across Canada. And we've actually done a very elaborate random selection process to um, determine who these school boards and schools are. So we're, we're trying to apply as much rigor to the research process as possible. But the interesting part of that is it allows us to um, build new connections and reach new communities that truly are underserved, that may not be down the street from the local university or, or health sciences institution, um, and really get some help to some people that are desperate for it, which is quite exciting. So essentially what we're doing here is 
three main outputs for the project. We're creating an awareness toolkit and web portal where there's resources on there um, for youth to engage with. And these are all vetted for quality and, and for content. Um, and have some sort of social media functionality on there where, where these youth can sort of like things and, uh, and, and favorite and, and engage with them in the way that they see best, which will be quite interesting. And we're going to collect some metrics on what resources that exist out there do youth really engage with most and what do they like best because we do make some assumptions on that with our knowledge translation activities on what we think youth will like, but we don't really know. So it'll be interesting to find out there. Um, so they'll have this toolkit or web portal, uh, and then we'll create these concussion clubs or concussion councils in the schools. Uh, and really the jobs of these councils are to um, train up on concussions, signs and symptoms, what to do when you have one, support your school environment. So be be a support system for someone that needs some advice. Maybe they don't want to go to their teacher or to their healthcare professional, and perhaps they can get some direction from, from uh, one of their peers, be it the captain of the hockey team or whatnot. Uh, and then also a big job for these councils is to create their very own um, concussion awareness campaign. Uh, so a campaign using the resources that are vetted from all around North America on this portal. So the messaging is, is accurate and there's some fidelity. Uh, and create a campaign that they'll share with their whole school and with their community and, and really try to share and translate some relevant messages in a way that they think will really work well within their school community. So rather than me come up with what that awareness campaign should look like, we're going to get a lot better ideas from the youth themselves that are going to be much more relevant. And I'm so excited to see what that looks like. At the end of all this, at the end of the school year, we do a big uh, virtual showcase where we celebrate all of the campaigns the youth engage with each other and they share their ideas. Uh, and then hopefully with some good research evaluation over the next year, um, that shows that this is an effective way to uh, raise awareness and change behaviors around concussion, uh, we can start to roll this out to any school in the country or in the world, for that matter, that wants to engage in something like this. So uh, we're really excited to give it a go. We're, we're sort of uh, been busy over the last uh, year and a half, two years with all the preparation. So uh, creating and doing pilot testing and usability testing on our web portal, uh, and engaging youth themselves in that design, which was amazing. I'll tell a really quick story around that. So we hired a, a web development company, which you, you usually do when you try to do these things and create a website. And then we, we paired up with a cyber arts uh, program at a local high school here in Toronto. And we pitched the idea of it and they basically looked at us like we were insane. And they said, that's not going to fly with us. You need to change the color scheme. It needs to function this way. And they essentially revamped the entire uh, platform with including logo design and color schemes in a way that's going to resonate with, with their cohort, which was so exciting to co-create something from the ground up with, with youth themselves. So um, that was fun. We've engaged stakeholders. Uh, we've created a new survey where we're going to be collecting pre and post knowledge attitudes and behavior, or at least intended behavior um, data from the entire school for all 18 schools that we're working with. So we're piloting that and doing some psychometric testing on that survey. Uh, we've done some piloting of the uh, program itself. So we've had some local high schools here in Toronto try out the clubs. And it's just amazing the ideas that these guys come up with um, to share great information within their school community and how it empowers these youth and, and perhaps sparks some interest in studying this field and entering into the health sciences 
uh, as they venture on to all the exciting things in their lives. So we're diving in right now. So this fall where we'll be uh, launching with our schools across Canada and, and our data collection delivery of the program. Uh, and we're just really excited about it. So stay tuned. We'll, we'll see what that looks like. And hopefully with some good data to support it, which is a, a goal of ours, we want to make sure we have good research evaluation before we make this uh, more broadly available to, to anyone, any high school that wants it. Uh, hopefully with some good data to support, we can start to unlock the potential of youth to help each other in the space of concussion across the country, across the world. And it's, uh, it, it's something, a real labor of love of, of mine and our team and our great collaborators. And yeah, really excited to, to dive in this year and see what the data tells us. That's so cool. I love how you ultimately and always come back to that you're basically putting the, the patient in the middle of this and making them having allowing them to be involved and and speak up and share their side of things to to empower them as opposed to this one-sided conversation that i think is is depicted in this conversation via social media and also now hollywood that it's a very one-sided thing and to bring the patient in their involvement even their creativity in helping their peers i think is is so powerful that that's when real change happens, I think, when everyone's involved. No, thank, yeah, thanks, man. We hope so. We, we hope this is going to be a way to really move the needle. And, and, you know, rather than eggheads like me go into school assemblies, which I do all the time, and, you know, I have half the group for maybe 10 minutes, and then it starts to dwindle as we go along. It's, you know, this, this is youth helping each other and really figuring out and, and brainstorming and troubleshooting, you know, the strategies that are going to be most effective for them. And of course, we're there to support them along the way, but um, there's something about empowering young people and, and using peer-to-peer models and service learning approaches that that the literature shows, and not yet in concussion, but we're getting there here with, with this study, hopefully, but in other fields, in other areas, um, that it works and it, it does move the needle. And, and you know, it, it really changes how young people perceive uh, different injuries and different conditions. And I think more importantly for us, how they can be a part of the solution, which is really exciting for us to see. Well, I, I again, I can tell just by the way you talk that um, people are, are lucky to see you that, that are, and I've seen many people that are struggling with concussion and the fact that they get your approach to things is they're lucky. And, and they're, it sounds like they're very much in the right hands, both as a, as a doctor, but also as a, as a person dealing with people, not just a, a checkbox and not just a number. So, um, yeah, I really, really appreciate this conversation and everything you do. And if you, the other thing I'll say is I do a lot of speaking at schools and not as much about concussion awareness as I used to back when I was playing, when I was talking to teams and schools about the realities of concussion. If you ever need someone in one of those assemblies, I would be more than happy to, to come out to the Toronto area and, and share the stage with you. If, if you, uh, if you would invite me, of course, or if you feel the need, but I'd be more than happy to, to chip in and, and what you're doing. I think it's amazing. Oh, what an offer, Ben. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold you to that one. I think that would be <laughs> fantastic. And keep in mind, we're going across Canada with this, so there could be a road show. So uh, get ready. I'll keep you posted. That brings us to the end of another Heroic Minds podcast. That was Dr. Nick Reed from now the University of Toronto. Uh, I encourage you to check out our website. I encourage you to check out the work that we're discussing on these episodes. Do your own research on it. Share these messages with your peers, especially if it's in a sporting environment where that risk of concussion is a little higher. Listen to some past episodes. Share them with someone that may be struggling. As we know when we bring it up all the time, that education alone in this topic can help someone recover. So maybe it's the sleep episode. Maybe 
Maybe it's the episode we just did with Dr. Kutcher about maybe it's not a concussion. Let's share these episodes with people. Let's arm people with information so that they can get back to life better, faster, stronger, etc. I'm Ben Finelli. This is the Heroic Minds Empower Series. We'll talk again soon.